Hello, and welcome to season two of the Prima Donna podcast. My name's Nat Grant. I'm a Melbourne-based composer and sound artist. To find out more about the podcast series, visit primadonnapodcast.com. The sixth portrait, the final in this series, is of classical pianist and film composer Elizabeth Drake. Elizabeth has composed music for live performance and theatre, but is possibly best known for her film work. In 2003, she was the first woman to win an AFI award for screen composition. In fact, she is still the only woman to have ever won this award, and she has some things to say about that. There's some water anyway, because I just think I will need definitely need water. Yes, yes. I'm just never quite sure how to talk about the very early childhood because I was I was identified by my parents in a way that I I don't sort of approve of. So I was described as a gifted child and I don't approve of that and I also think that it's not good. So I was performing, you know, when I was 8 and um and I was you know, known to play the piano. <laughs> and um, and first of all, I really loved it. And when I was six, it was like my sixth birthday present and the piano was there. And it belonged to my grandfather, who I adored. So there was all this kind of love around it. But then gradually, as the pressure came to kind of live up to this idea of me, which is just an idea, it's nothing to do with anything, it became more more sort of restricted and more, um, you know, you have to have your technique by the time you're 14 and, you know, you should be able to play anything by the time you're 14. And so I was practising like every single morning, 6.30, always at the piano and then when I'd come home. So I did do a lot of um, work. And then, um, but what was, you know, the redeeming feature was that I had a lot of friends who were also playing the piano like me and we formed quite a little group of friends and we'd go to all the competitions and play at all the concerts and so it became more kind of easier or more normalised once I had all those friendships and things and then um, but I was determined not to study music at the university and I felt like that my life belonged to the university. I just couldn't wait to get school out of the way. <laughs> and um, so when I went to university, I actually read um, English and philosophy, particularly philosophy. And that was what really, in a way, interested me more. And it's just always been this tussle between this um, performance as a concert pianist and my interest in philosophy and kind of being an artist or whatever so that's been like a story that started at university but um what actually happened at university was that I um I um I won a big competition in music and it was called the ABC concerto and vocal competition and so that kind of in a way took me away again from the philosophy and the I mean I learned everything I learned at university I learned in the CAF I never, I didn't, I didn't go to lectures particularly. I was studying maths actually, and they, all those lectures were at nine thirty in the morning, and the chances of me being there were pretty slim. So, um, so it was more kind of like a general education, and then suddenly 
I won this competition and it meant that there were a lot of opportunities came my way as a pianist and so I performed with all the symphony orchestras probably in Australia like one by one and um, and I suppose there was a time particularly when I played I played the Beethoven fourth piano concerto I distinctly remember this with the Hobart Symphony Orchestra and that's a performance that somehow or other I thought oh maybe I am a musician after all or something about it or maybe I am maybe this is really what I'm meant to be doing I was 22 so I kind of thought hmm what am I actually going to do with this you know because and I've got a recording of it actually and I listen to it and I go yeah that was that was me you know it sounded like me it was me and it sort of so I kind of I guess that made life a bit more difficult really as to which direction to follow um and then and then I did I'd performed with the Australian Youth Orchestra in the yeah, in the town hall and, and my sister was in the orchestra and lots of my friends were in the orchestra so it was you know a joyful time and then I took off for Europe and I went to Siena and in Siena I was really 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 happy I just thought I'd arrived somewhere and I was quite open to the fact that they may think that I couldn't play the piano at all quite happy if that was the case, but in fact, I did perform at the final concert, and I, you know, people did appreciate me and acknowledge me. So that was another step in the direction of me following the concert pianist path. And um, and then I went to London, and London was a total catastrophe, basically. <laughs> and um, I would. In London, I would actually go down to the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Art, and I'd just sit there and I'd go, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I know I'm meant to be here. So I would go to theatre things and I'd see the art that was going on. And in those days, Cornelius Cardew was doing a lot of the, um, oh, the inflatables and we'd walk through the inflatables and there'd be these weird sounds and everything. And I'm not sure that I particularly thought I'm going to be doing this. I just knew that I wanted to be there. So I took in masses of stuff while I was in London. Um, and also I noticed that I went to quite a lot of Indian music and, um, and listened to the sitar and the tabla and then of course the repetitive things which have now turned into kind of minimalism in that sense you know and so I was there at that time when that was happening and um, there was a really really uh, wonderful concert that I went to of Stockhausen and um, we were all hippies in the 70s and we all turned up in our Afghan coats and cushions at St Pancras Town Hall and we all lay on the floor this is the audience and he was in the middle with his computer which is about the size of a truck in his white white t-shirt and jeans and then around the periphery of the St Pancras Town Hall was were the musicians and all the speakers were in the ceiling and this was like this was a real event for me because I could see that you could take music away from 
the performer and the audience, that sort of dichotomy, you know, one viewing the other, one presenting to the other, and that you could actually include the audience as part of the event. And that was a huge shift for me, absolutely huge shift. And that was when I started to think about coming back to Australia and maybe pursuing something other than the concert pianist, but not totally sure what. So when I say it was a catastrophe, it was a very a point where I really didn't know which direction to take and I was drawn in different different ways. But I did, I mean, I did really train. I did practice always every single day, six hours a day, 10 to one and two to five, like for about 10 years. So it is that I did actually train and I'm kind of glad that I have that. And it's never really gone away, like I still perform. But I have moved into other areas as well. It hasn't been just a single path. You know, in my philosophical side, I have actually read some of, and of Badieu, Alain Badieu, and he talks about the event and how it brings something outside of the situation that you're actually in and how it can actually change things. And of course, he talks about it in political terms and revolution and things but he does say that it also occurs within an artist's life and within personal life so yeah I think as you get older you kind of those events are much clearer what they are for you um, and you can actually experience them viscerally and remember them and the, the way you remember them is actually the way they are you know or the way they are now or the way they are really so um, I think I have been thinking about that more and particularly in my own work I think I'm not looking for content outside you know the content is all here of whatever I'm going to make so think about those particular events think about those things that have that were the watershed moments the way things changed the way you turned around somewhere else that you never expected to particularly and um and i think the stockhausen concert definitely made a big difference in terms of being a con having a concert career which was not that and i think that was the beginning of postmodernism too i think he literally opened up the world of music to the audience in a different way literally in about 1968 and then the French philosophers you know wrote a lot of their stuff in the 70s and um and Lacan wrote um the other side of psychoanalysis in 1969 and um and that was when he opposed psycho the psychoanalytic thought opposed it to mastery so it's like that's been a journey for me, you know, the whole time, really. How much is about mastery and how much is about actually opening up a world and, work, work, you know, working more with the multiple. So instead of being the, the master, the one, you open it up. And the Stockhausen was the first time that I really experienced that, I think. So that was very exciting. And I've definitely, you know, fo tried to follow that through you know, in my thinking. So you continue to do all this practice after you left school when no one was enforcing you? Um, well, when I actually left school and went to university, I actually broke my arm 
riding a horse. I had my own horse and I used to love my horse. And, um, and I used to do these very, very dangerous things like leaping and, and um, with my first horse, I used to see how, how often, how much, what, how much I could stand up on him stand up like a circus performer always falling off and my big aim was to be able to have him galloping and me go under and come up the other side and I never achieved it ever but I used to try it I could go around his neck almost but I couldn't go under I used to practice that a lot but that isn't when I fell off but it was when I hurt myself but then I had a much taller horse and um, I hadn't been hadn't ridden him for a while and I think I misjudged the jump for him because you have to choose how many steps before he jumps and he fell as I did and um, and I dislocated my elbow and everyone freaked out uh, except me actually and I'd been talking with a friend about how you could um, what did she say you can tune the pain out or something like that and I did that so when I arrived up in hospital they said is it hurting and I said it depends which way you look at it To which they immediately gave me an injection of morphine, which I actually didn't need. So anyway, so when I went up, to, when I um, actually left school, I, I had my arm in a sling. But I did play the Ravel left-hand piano concerto. So my left hand's always been stronger than my right, actually. No, no, but I, I played that. So it was only, so I suppose it was from leaving school to winning the competition was probably about four years. Yes, I, no, I was always practising and always part of my group. But, um, but it was after I won the competition that I had this 10 to 1, 2 to 5, has, has to do it in order. Self-imposed. Self-imposed, yeah. I still, no, it was quite easy, actually. It wasn't hard at all. Occasionally I'd read a book while I was practising, but most of the time I was actually concentrating. It's a big thing, but I think I felt... I mean, in those days, I would think the concert's four weeks away. Yeah, that's an awfully long time. Whereas now, you know, with my students, because I teach, and I say the concert's four weeks away, it's so close, you've got to have it ready by next week. But in those days, it seemed like a long time. And I do remember, I mean, I suppose our memory was very good. I remember memorising the second movement of the D minor Bach concerto, like the night before, played it perfectly no question you know there's just no question but that's being young yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and doing that a lot I guess as well practicing and memorizing yes yes no well I've always um been quite analytical and quite structural so I could memorize something because I could analyze it and sometimes when I'm teaching I actually analyze quicker than if I'm on my own because I realize I have to impart that to someone else and I can't see how that composer got there and it's really you know it's helpful so that's something that I do I enjoy that about music actually it's about really trying to analyze it and see where where it was coming from but I mean I still do it now but um but it certainly started I think yeah probably after after winning that competition and then having those experiences in London I think I thought Right, well, it's not just cause and effect. That was a big thing that happened in, in London. I thought it isn't just that there's those notes and then you play them, like there's something else and there's something from the unconscious or whatever. And I remember thinking that it's not just cause and effect. It's, got, it's a world 
of its own, you know, outside of that. And that was that was a big thing, but it was also quite hard to know quite what to do with that knowledge. Like it was a bit knowledge that I rather wished I didn't have, to be frank. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's sort of probably driven me through my whole life. So, you know, you wouldn't say really that it was a, a problem. But yeah, when something like, when you suddenly think it is outside the world of um, logic or narrative, that there's something outside of that and that music does tap into that, then I think, yeah, you're sort of destined for a slightly different path, probably. <laughs> Do you agree? Yeah. 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 Because I was talking with my nephew the other day and I said, it is an ethical place, isn't it? You know, like when, when things just fall away, that's an ethical place. And we agreed that it, that it was, yeah. And so when you came back to Australia, did you involve yourself in some completely different types of Well, performing? because at Melbourne University I had been <coughs> quite associated with the theatre world there, a number of my friends were now at the pram factory. So I set myself the target that I had to become a collective member of the pram factory, which I did. And I sort of wrote out this whole idea of what I thought music could do inside theatre and how it could change meaning and did all that and stood up and did it. And then they said, um, you know, do you want to go out or are you happy to see the vote? And I said, I'm happy to see the vote. And I was voted in and I was really thrilled. So I did work in theatre at that time and sometimes as a pianist too um, but I started to think how can how can music affect a performance or what meaning can it bring or how can it change a scenario which has been a big thing for me um, and it started there and but then I um, but I was still playing for example in a trio with two members from the Melbourne Orchestra and with Jeff Crowland the oboe player and we were performing and then he asked me, would I like to, he had quite a lot of power, he said he would pull strings but I would have to audition to be the pianist for the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. And that was another watershed moment because I was working on Failing in Love Again with Jan Cornell and we were performing a lot and I felt so relevant there and so much less relevant that I said no. And I went to Sydney with Failing in Love Again. And that was probably my introduction to feminism in a set, well, not introduction necessarily, but my way of expressing feminism. And I did feel incredibly relevant. It just felt like we were, we were saying something. And it was fun, you know, and it was very, it was very much sort of comedy about love, romantic love, and soon I will be cross-eyed and, you know, all this kind of looking into your eyes and then you'll be cross-eyed and these things like that. It was fun. And also we kind of, Jan Cornell and myself, were friends, good friends, and we, so we would laugh together and play together and people felt that just showing a kind of friendship which was not competitive, even though probably underneath it probably was but it didn't seem that way. It seemed like that we really just were sharing this moment in time really together. And 
I followed that instead because it was I did, really did want to go to Sydney. And then that so that was really the time when I really turned away from what may have been a career path and turned away from that towards um, ideas, I think, and, and feminism sort of was carrying us, I suppose, in a sense. So then during one of the performances, Jan and I did two works in Sydney. We also did a work called Worse Than Perverse and that was when I started composing sort of minimalist things and I had a quite an old-fashioned sequencer. I used to let it <laughs> loop and loop and loop and loop and loop and I used to love doing all that and then adding drum machines and I had masses of fun. And we did Worse Than Perverse around as well. And then um, the producer, Megan McMurchie, came up to me and said, have you ever thought of working in film? I said, never. And she said, well, we'd like that kind of music for our film, which is called For Love or Money. And For Love or Money, it was a documentary made of archival footage. And it was, it's been, it's like a montage, a series of montages with certain themes inside it but no nothing shot particularly it was all archival footage so choosing things out of um, my brilliant career and you know films and then also archival footage of um, Aboriginal women and uh, it was called Women and Work in Australia and it was the work of loving was equally privileged as well as the work for money. So it was quite a groundbreaking film and it took two years on my behalf to make and, um, and it was an incredible learning curve for me and um, I did really enjoy it, you know, and it came out of feminism and it's now just been re-digitised in Canberra and apparently it's a really beautiful version of it. And I was at home with my reel-to-reel tape recorder, bouncing tracks down off my ARP Odyssey and my little sequencer. And we, you know, actually it's one of my favourite pieces of music. I actually really, it sort of wavers a little bit because it was on reel-to-reel. And it sounds kind of vulnerable and it doesn't sound nostalgic to me at all. And it does, certainly doesn't, I don't feel like it's sad. I feel like it's just there. That's what I feel. something has ethical content even though you're not actually speaking in words or in language as we speak about language um, that you are actually opening people up to or political political um, statements about difference or acceptance or acknowledgement of the other that all occurs within musical framework I think and that's probably what does interest me now so that was good I loved playing with Vanessa Tomlinson yeah Um, and we played um, the Steve Reich piano phase over in D division Pentridge prison and again nothing was spoken about the barbarism of this terrible place but it was there for all to experience and to have tried to say anything or try to um, make some comment about masculinity or anything like would have been been much less than what the audience actually were able to 
experience for themselves. So that's letting the audience in, I suppose, yeah. Well, because of the barbarism, which is clearly there in D Division, like these tiny rooms where these incredibly, like, let's say energetic rather than violent men, just men with enormous amount of um, energy and life force mm. locked into these tiny little rooms. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't survive. I mean, you know, it's just too terrible. And then going outside um, in the courtyards, like there's barbed wire everywhere um, but they were not allowed out there very often and only in small groups and it was all divided up so there was no community or it was probably there was a community mm. underneath it all yeah. but um, but that's that's what I took away was this this idea of putting these vibrant human beings into a tiny room like that and, and thinking that that was going to do it help at all anyone actually <laughs> After Megan asked me to do the music, for compose the music for, for Love or Money, that was then a direction of my career that other people then asked me. But the people that asked me were um, more philosophical people who were making, making essay films. So I've always felt that that was my kind of direction, that I would really... Like, for example, Breathing Underwater by Susan Dermody. And that was actually named because, um, because of the ideas of the sound of the breath and also using hydrophonic microphones. So that's how it got called, Breathing Underwater. So I went out into the river with my microphones and diddled around with the water. And they, it was actually like a major part of my contribution. And, um, and there were a lot of ideas in that film and also about childhood and things. And so there was, and, and I took as much from that in terms of the ideas as I did, because when I actually did the music for that film, I got, don't quite know how this happened, but I had, I think, nine members of the Australian Opera chorus inside this, not an anechoic chamber, but an echoic chamber, a reverb chamber, and got them singing all these clusters. And I thought it was going to be great, but when I heard it, I hated it. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I've just sort of thrown all this money down the drain. And Megan was the, direct, was the producer. And I just said to her, I said, I think I've really messed up. It just sounds too echoic and, you know, it just didn't have the right atmosphere for me. And she, she sort of said, okay, fine. Right, so moving on, she said, what will we do now? And it was funny because I just went, okay, so what is the really important thing about this film? I decided that I would use the um, harmonic series and I did use it on the cello. So I got this cellist back into that echoic chamber but he was just at the at the door not inside it and he played into it so we had a microphone on him so you could get the present sound as well and we did the whole score in about one afternoon it just like it was all suddenly there and suddenly this idea of these um this harmonic series and yeah I mean now I am interested in spectral music actually but at that point I didn't 
I didn't know what spectral music was, I don't think. But I now it was that, clearly, but only higher up the uh, higher up in the register. But yeah, it was um it was interesting that to kind of mess it up and then to find that in one afternoon even timings and I wasn't actually didn't actually give him a click track at all. Even timings were sort of fitting in. And we just went straight through the film. So so that was kind of, that was a, a lesson. And but it was that was the kind of thing that I liked doing. I liked those moments when when you felt like what you were doing just wasn't right. In fact I That's usually like hit that always. Exactly. Exactly. And I've just been through that with my renovations too. <laughs> and they we just suddenly come up with the perfect solution. And I'm going, why didn't we see that before? Yeah. So Japanese story um, was probably the most... I did do Road to Nil with um, Sue and Alison. And then moving on to Japanese story was certainly the most fictional, most dramatic, um, most sort of clearly feature film that I'd worked on. Um, but as soon as I read the script, I thought this is a gift to any composer because you've got the desert, you've got the Pilbara, and you've got this Japanese disjunction, this man inside there. And so I decided that I would use a Japanese instrument and a singer and strings, basically. So I, and there's also a work by Tan Dunn called Ghost Opera and that uses its pipa percussion and the chrono string quartet and I love that work totally adore it and I thought right well that's going to be my sort of template that's going to be my timbral quality except I'll change from the pipa the Chinese instrument I'll move to the Japanese instrument but not the koto but the shamisen but in the end I did double it with the koto so that was my kind of way of using the sound I didn't use very much um, actual Japanese modes. I did go down to Monash and sort of study them a little bit and studied with someone down there, but I actually didn't use them because I found the Okinawan folk song. And the reason that I love the Okinawan folk songs is that they have ostinato patterns inside them. And played on the shamisen and doubled with the koto, it still is... Um, pretty tonal, you know, and then I put strings around that. So that was how it became um, what it was, in a sense. That's that's that was the. But then, in the last, when I took the idea to Jill Bilcock, the editor, she just said, "Okay, play it again, play it again, play it again, play it again," and um, so she actually helped me with the orchestration of it because she put the music over the final 14 minutes of the film the bits and pieces that that I kind of and so um so what happened was that then I was when she brought the voice in I brought the voice in so and then I got Shelley Scown to sing it who actually could and we we did sing it in Japanese and she had some understanding of how to do um, the actual tones and things, but we also had uh, a uh, coach for her. But um, I felt like I wanted to 
I didn't want to go to Okinawa. I didn't want to reproduce the folk song as it would be done there. I have got about three different CDs and three different versions of it, including Roji Sakamoto. And, um, but it's, it sounds much more um, twangy. And I thought, and maybe listening a little bit to the Tandum piece, I thought, it's okay, I don't have to make it sound ethnic. I can just make it sound like an ostinato work with strings around it. So I wanted to do whatever I could find in Australia. I didn't want to go overseas and find something. I don't know whether I feel like that now, but I did then. So I found Satsuku Odomura in um, Sydney and she had the only shamisen in Australia, but it was higher than the one that they use in Okinawa. And so that was a moment, do I have to use that? And I think the directors would have preferred me to have used the lower one. But I said, this is the only one. So I doubled it lower on the koto. So that's how we kind of got around that. So all those little things end up, you know, the way it did. But I was very, I felt very much when I read the script, I thought, this is really very lovely for the composer, you know, all those disjunctions and then that vast landscape, which I didn't actually visit until after the film was made. And I went, when I did visit the Pilbara, I thought I would have made the music more hostile had I experienced the Pilbara. Like, it's very romantic music, it was very romantic. And um, when I was there, I thought, this landscape will just kill me at any point if I don't have enough water, if I walk in the wrong place, if I get lost, like, I'll just die, you know. And I was fascinated by that. And I thought, and that was supposed to be there in the film, and maybe it was a little bit when their car got bogged and things, but I think having been there, I would have... And I normally do go to the shoot, but they were in such chaos, so I didn't go. And is that the film that you won the A5? Yes. Oh, yes. We don't have to. No, we will. No, no, I just, it's just, it is kind of mind-blowing because um, when I, you know, when, I, when Japanese Story was awarded Best Music, I remember thinking at the time, oh, I wonder how many other women have won this. And, um... And I look back, and the first time I look back, I couldn't find any. So then it would be correct to say that I was the first woman. Then I actually thought that um, Nerida Tyson Chu had won it in 1995. But on reflection, or on re-researching, she was nominated, but she didn't win it. But the even more shocking thing is that no one, no woman has won it since I did. And that's pretty unbelievable, really. And um, I was, I mean, I am on the committee of the Board of Screen Composers, but I'm also on the Gender Equity Committee. But each time the AFI or Actor Awards now come around, like, we kind of set up the photo opportunity, you know, like for me and the next woman. And it just hasn't happened yet. It's kind of like, really? That, that is unthinkable. But more women are being nominated now. Like last year, both Bryony Marks and Caitlin Yeo were. But I do think, I, th I think it's partly conception of what goes into 
the kind of the best film score. Um, so, for example, Lion won because it was very full-on orchestral music and was seen to be a sort of major piece of composition, maybe. And maybe what... Um, I mean, I thought Bryony's um, score for... I'm just trying to remember the name of it. It was a Berlin... Oh, the Berlin Syndrome, which was a terrifying film. Unbelievably terrifying. But you got the feeling right from the beginning of this unease, this sense of this is not the way, this is not the way it looks. Some, but it was not overt, it was not telling you. You just entered the film in a way that you had this feeling something's not quite right. And it was in the score, you know, it may well have also been in the framing and things, but there was, whereas normal things were happening, you know, she was getting on a tram and you know, all that, but actually you had this weird feeling and then suddenly it did all go very weird. I think often you're looking for something that adds something or that makes the film different. And, um, and I think that scores that just follow the action and take you along from one scene to the next, it's not necessarily doing that. The other score seemed so much bigger and more produced and, and it was, you know, Lion did win nearly all the awards, but I thought that's not really quite fair. Anyway, it's just an award, yes, but it yes, does, but what it speaks, yeah, <clears throat> I think it does, I think it does because the film industry, I guess, is an industry and it plays with a lot of money and it is very kind of insular in some ways and, and I don't think that it really understands quite how, I mean, how, how many, quite what those statistics really mean, you know, that women are not actually working in the film industry. Um, and I think, I think, I mean, I think the way, the way in is probably to show a, a kind of interest in filmmaking um, and to find a way of actually being a sort of early on collaborator and and then I think not only are women you know possibly more more likely to be given those opportunities but also the concept of what a film score is might change as well because I think at the moment, um, often the film is finished, locked off, everything's done, and it's handed to a composer to kind of like, you know, tie the ribbon around it, really. And um, I don't think that's the best approach. And I think that the more we open up the whole process, the more likely it is that that, um, that women that show that capacity or show that interest will be given the opportunity because that's what it is. It's being given the opportunity. There's no question about whether people can do it. It's just getting the opportunity, being given, yeah. Well, I think, I think it's good to keep drawing attention to the fact that how many women composers there are and how many, how fabulous, you know, and how 
and how incredibly capable and I think it's I think it's a way of approaching that's probably the way that will change change the numbers. Thanks for listening to the Prima Donna podcast. For more information or to subscribe for future episodes, visit primadonnapodcast.com.